Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. So here we are into the Advent season, and this is the time, as Janet noted earlier, where the church has historically um, set its mind again on the Incarnation. Now, hopefully here at Redeemer, this isn't anything new. We should be talking every single week about why and how God became flesh and the implications it has on us. And yet, uh, we do take a specific look at uh, Christmas and at the coming, at the Advent. That means coming um, every year at this time. And uh, for the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the book of Ezekiel, which may sound strange to some people, but it's really not. And so we're going to jump in, and we're going to ca- jump into the middle of Ezekiel, uh, two-thirds of the way in, uh, chapter 34, verses 11 to 24. Let me read that. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the, all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. On a rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Did I say that twice? Sorry, I felt like I read it twice. Verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture, and to drink of clear water, that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet, and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with, with side and shoulder and thrust at the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Okay, so since we're airlifting ourselves into the middle of Ezekiel here, I think a little bit of context is important to help you understand what's going on here. And to understand the book of Ezekiel, which I know can seem intimidating, it really shouldn't be, um, it helps to know who Ezekiel was and when he grew up and all of that. So let me give you a very short history lesson. First, Ezekiel has the privilege of being born and living through arguably one of the most exciting and terrifying times in Israel's history. 
in Judah's history. So he's born in 622 BC. And the same year he is born is the very year that the book of the law is found in the temple by Hilkiah, the priest, Josiah's priest. And he's born five years into Josiah, who's the king of Judah, his religious reforms. And so it's an exciting time in Judah. There's religious renewal. And as a result of Israel, of Judah recapturing their religious traditions, there's actually a swell in Jewish nationalism as well. So as a nation, they become more bound together. They become more convinced that Assyria shouldn't be ruling over them, and eventually Babylon as well. And there's a lot of excitement in the city of Jerusalem. But at the same time that this is happening, there is a prophet named Jeremiah preaching. So remember, Ezekiel's a kid, and he joins and starts studying for the priesthood. And while he's studying for the priesthood, he's seeing religious reform happening on one hand, but he's also hearing Jeremiah yelling at the priests, saying, wonderful that there's, re there's reforms, but it's not enough. The heart needs to be changed, not just the structures. We don't need better plans, we need transform transformed hearts. And so he's in this very tense time, Ezekiel, he's growing up. And when he's 17 years old, there's a big brouhaha between the king and Jeremiah, where Jeremiah just flat out calls the king arrogant and a fool, and the king takes his writings and burns them publicly. So big, big issues happening. And then Assyria falls. Assyria falls to Babylon. And when this happens, Babylon reasserts their control over Judah. And a young king named Nebuchadnezzar comes to the throne. And at this point, he's 17 years old, is Ezekiel. 17 years old, and he's now seen all this happen. And Israel doesn't like, Judah does not like to be under the thumb of anybody. Remember, they've grown in their Jewishness under Josiah. And so they rebel, twice actually they rebel. The first rebellion happens, and Nebuchadnezzar is somewhat kind. He defeats Jerusalem, but he doesn't crush the city yet. But he does take a number of people captive to Babylon in the first deportation, or the first exile. And in that group is 25-year-old Ezekiel. He is taken in that first group to Babylon. And five years later, he's going to be sitting at the banks of a canal, there's a, the Euphrates River near Babylon was, was, um, was uh, redirected into a canal to help irrigate farmland. And it seems Jeremiah or Ezekiel is sitting on the banks of one of these irrigation canals called the Kaber Canal. And that's when he sees a vision, a very seemingly bizarre vision. Read Ezekiel, the first few chapters. You're going to see what I mean. But the point of the vision is very simple. God has driven Israel into exile because of their infidelity, because they don't believe in God. But he hasn't just sent them into exile, he has gone with them into exile. He is mobile. He's moved away from Jerusalem, abandoned Jerusalem, but he's not abandoned his people. So Ezekiel tries to encourage Israel. But five years later, he's now 30 years old, the year he should be made a priest. That's when you're allowed to become a priest in Israel. But in that year, he meets a refugee. A refugee comes from Jerusalem and says, Nebuchadnezzar's had enough. The second rebellion was too much for him. He came, he destroyed Jerusalem, broke down the walls, burned the city and the temple to the ground, and he's exiled just about everybody who is not destitute and poor. And at that point, Ezekiel hears that in chapter 33. So that leads us to where we are now in chapter 34. And what God does is he gives Ezekiel a message. And he says, I've seen what's happening to you and to, in, in the world, and how your leaders have let you down, and here's a message for you. Your shepherds have let you down. So he says, in, in a nutshell, and we talked about it a little, Janet mentioned it without knowing, 
He calls to Israel, and there's a response. I have seen what's happening in Israel, and now I'm responding. And this idea of a call and response is constantly at work in the relationship between God and Israel, and today, the church and God. God is always listening for Israel to cry out, and his people to cry out, and he responds. Call, response, call, response. And this got me thinking about something that happens a lot at Christmas, and it's an old singing choral reference. It's called antiphonal singing, or antiphon. And what antiphonal singing is, is it's call and response. In fact, you all know a song at Christmas that is probably one of the more popular Christmas songs, uh, carols, that is an antiphonal song, and it's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Because it means there's often two sets of singers in these songs. One calls, and the other one responds. And so in this song, we cry out. This is the church, the, uh, Israel, cries out, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And then the response comes, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And so there's an antiphony, antiphonal singing, back and forth. And this idea is so rooted in Christmas that the early church, long before the 6th century, we don't know exactly when, but early, the church created something called the Great Advent Antiphon. And it's seven songs, very short songs. You can find them on just anywhere you listen to music. They're choral, they're haunting, you know, the old choral songs are often. And for the seven days leading up to Christmas, they sing these songs. They used to, and we, we, we don't. Sometimes we get so nervous about Catholicism in the Protestant church that we don't want to touch any of it, even the parts that might remain helpful. And, right, and somebody's laughing because you know it's true. And so, in fact, how many sermons you hear on Mary in the Protestant church? We're terrified, right? Don't touch her. We don't want to, lest anybody think we're popish. But, sorry, it's my side note. But with antiphonal singing, these, these, these songs, each one of the seven songs has a call. It starts with, a, it uses a different title for God. And they're all, well, they were in Latin and they've been translated in English by the Anglican Church and so on. And all of them call God, O wisdom, come. O rex, O king, come. O root of David, come. O key of David, come. And, he, and everyone is sung. And the reason we sing these songs, why do we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel? He's come. Well, the reason that we do it at Christmas time and again, and we sing these songs and we call Jesus to come, is twofold, at least twofold. One, to remind us that he has come, but also to build the anticipation for the second coming, because we yet need him to come again. And so at Christmas, we slow down, as Janet said. We do call out to God, and he responds and says, I've sent my son, and then we call back and say, come again. Come again, we need him. And so it's all at once a time of reassurance, but also anticipation. As kids anticipate Christmas Day for very different reasons, um, we are to anticipate Christmas Day, not because Christ is being born again. That's not what we're doing. It's simply recalling that important episode in Christianity, which is in some ways Christianity, that God became flesh. And so, with that said, we now look at this passage in Ezekiel. And when we come to Ezekiel, we see all through this whole Advent season that Christmas is a call and a response. God hears that it was it will come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransoms captive Israel that mourns in lonesome was it mourns in lonely exile here. Thank you. In lonely exile here, we call out, and God says, "Yes, I'm coming." And then when He comes, what does He do? He calls back to us, "Repent and believe." And so the call comes back from to God now, and we are asked to respond. And that's what we do every time we take communion. We respond again and again. And so Christmas is a time, yes. We receive, but we're also called to respond. It's a call to respond to God. 
And so what we're going to see in this passage is we are, it shows us that Christmas offers us a call, a response, and a promise. Okay? That's a start. Now, let's see the call. Um, as I said earlier, you all know I like Charles Dickens' book, uh, A Christmas Carol, not because it's got perfect theology, quite the opposite, but because it's a wonderful book, a wonderful story. And in it, the second ghost that Dickens, or, um, Scrooge encounters is the ghost of Christmas present. And you may recall the one is this big guy, oftentimes. This is a, that's the, one of the original uh, pictures that came with the book. And the, he's this larger-than-life spirit. He's sitting on top of a throne surrounded by plenty food. The dingy house of Scrooge has been turned into a green cornucopia of things. There's abundance everywhere. And what is it that he says? Come in and know me better, man. Right? Remember that part? Everybody knows it. Come in and know me better. Now, why does Scrooge have to know the ghost of Christmas present better? Because earlier in the story, in the Christmas past, the girl that he broke up with, remember he was engaged to a woman and she breaks up with him? And she says, another, another idol has replaced you in, in, in your heart, placed me in your heart. And her response is very insight, insightful. She says, you fear the world too much. You fear the world. And this is why Scrooge is always clutching and grabbing at money, at time, at control. He is terrified. And so he's always grabbing. If he has enough money, then he doesn't need to fear the poverty that he grew up in or the poverty that's all around him. So he hangs on. So the reason he needs to know this ghost better is he needs to know the abundance that is in the world. You don't need to be afraid that there is less in the world. There is plenty. I said to you before, think about Christmas. Think about winter. Do you know how many snowball, snowflakes fall? I don't. So if you do know, well, I don't believe it. You don't know. <laughs> but I'm sure there's a mathematician who has some sort of formula to come up with it. But here's what I do know. Almost every single one of those snowflakes will never be seen. You'll see a clump of snow, but you won't see the beauty of it. And here's a God who is so abundant, so artistic, so overflowing with everything, that he throws out unique and beautiful works that no one will ever see doesn't care, just throws it out, because beauty is worth it for the sake of beauty, and he is so abundant. And so Scrooge needs to see that. And the reason God comes, he says in Ezekiel, is because the world needs to know him better, man. The world doesn't understand. It didn't then, and it still doesn't. The understanding of God in this world, and just like in Isaiah's, Ezekiel's time, is, is backwards. And here is, quite literally, what... Um, Ezekiel says in chapter 36, he's going to say this. This is what God says. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And so God is clearly upset about his reputation being sullied. And here is where a skeptic, the non-Christian will say, what kind of a God is this? Is he really this insecure? Is he really so insecure that because somebody has, has slandered him in the world, he has to come back and crush and destroy? Is that really the sort of God of the Bible? And they walk away right, from the faith oftentimes, or they won't even listen to Christianity. And here's the great irony. The very fact, if that's you, if you believe that, the very fact you believe that about God shows that he is right. You don't know him. Because if you think that God's response here, the sake of his name, is because he's worried about what you think about him, 
because he's lost something. It shows you actually don't know the biblical God at all. Because the, Bi- the God of the Bible, it's very simple. Your lies and your opinions about him, good or bad, neither add nor subtract from him. You can no more hurt God by slandering him than you can put out the sun by writing darkness on the wall. You cannot, you, slander, you can slander him all you want, but you don't diminish his glory. And the same thing is your praise doesn't add to his glory. God is not in need of your honor or your praise. He doesn't need it. And that means if you think that the reason he's saying this to Ezekiel is because he's jealous in, in a human sort of way, that he's been slandered and he just can't stand to be thought of wrong, then you're misunderstanding the God of the Bible. The reason he comes, and he says it again regularly, is there's basically two things here. First, there's a simple fact that God is worthy of our praise. And there are lies have been spoken about him. And in this world, you would never say that lies should be allowed to continue. No, no. Lies and libel should be answered by truth. That's what, that's what happens in this world. And so on one side, it's just very logical. God says, we can't have lying. You're wrong. You're telling lies about me. And he's blaming Israel here. The church, the people of God, have not told the truth about him. He says the second thing is the reason is because his name is profaned, because we don't tell people who God is and they don't know him better, people are walking away from him. And so he's actually angry for your sake. Because you have the wrong impression of who he is, you're running away from the only hope you have. And so he's angry. And he's angry with the people of God because your job, our job, is to tell the world who he is, to do it right, to speak rightly of him as best we can. And so he's angry for very good reasons. And so Christmas, when he says, I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming as your shepherd, God, when he comes, and Christmas is an attempt by God to right the wrong. He's saying, if you want to know me better, look at the manger. Look at why I've come. Don't listen to the skeptics on the radio. Don't listen to your TikTok videos. Instead, look at Christmas and ask, why would God, the glory of all, come and become man? Why? And when you look at that, that's what you, he says, I'm coming. Because uh, now I'm, I'm going to remove the error. You will know me better when you look and see who I have been and what I have done. And when you, see, when you look at, the, at Christmas, what do you see? That he came to end suffering, to end confusion about who you are. People have identity crisis, right? Who am I? What am I? Look at Christ. You're suffering? Look to Christ. You're hopeless? Look to Christ. And this is what we see time and again. And so Christmas shows us first who God is. But it also shows us who we are, because you see Scrooge, when he looks at the ghost of Christmas present, he sees who he is, a clutching, grasping, covetous old sinner, right? And so when we look at Christ, when, when, when God comes, he not only reveals himself, but he reveals us to ourselves. And what he says in this passage is, is a little terrifying. So first, know this. We as humans have very noble ambitions. We have always wanted to make a good world. We've actually, we've actually always wanted to make a perfect world. And sadly, we, we're under the impression we can build a, a perfect world without God. And this isn't new. Plato thought it. Plato, many moons ago, uh, 2,500 years ago or whatever, um, roughly, said, you know, the best way to have a really good world, and I'm going to paraphrase because please, if you're a philosophy major, understand I can't say everything. But in a nutshell, he says the best way to have the best possible world is let the philosophers run it. Philosopher King. Remember, there's actually a Canadian band called the Philosopher Kings. Who's old enough to know that? Um, and there, I saw a hand go up. Don't admit it. Don't admit it. It's Christmas. 
Um, so Plato says, you know, the best way, and here's Plato, as brilliant as he was, he said, you know why? Because people who are really intelligent, they're free from corruption because they're rational. Right? They won't be, they won't, they won't, they're, not, they're harder to corrupt. They know good and they have the discipline to do good and resist evil. I'm sorry, Plato. But that's okay. That's what he thought, and I understand that. And many moons later come a guy, a guy named Thomas More, who wrote a book called Utopia, where we, which means, by the way, in Greek, anyone know? It means nowhere. And we don't know why Thomas More called it that. Is it because he saw there was no place on earth, or because it's impossible to create? But he, so he thought, uh, first he rightly diagnosed it, right? He did say the world is full of greedy, unscrupulous, and useless men. Okay, good start. But then he said the answer, of course, is basically a, a primitive form of communism. We should have everything in common. The state should raise your children, um, just because that way you're too, you're too biased. right? You'll, you'll flatter your kids, so let the state do it. Um, and he said, very, maybe naive, well, not maybe, naively, but although we can appreciate him, we just have to love each other and respect each other more, and then everything will be perfect. Yeah, thanks. We know that. But the problem is we can't do it, Thomas. That's the problem. And this hasn't gone away. Here, for all of our science, all we have done, all we have managed to do is now say, we look to science to provide an answer. And I'm not knocking science. We need science. But there's a naivete that continues to work in humanity. And one of many people is just this, this one professor, uh, a Spanish guy named Jose Maria Gomez. He does a study of all of human violence for the history of the world, as far as he could tell. And he charts it, and he sees that sometimes we're a little more peaceful, we don't kill as many people, sometimes we're worse, and it goes up and down. And he decides after all of this, his final conclusion is that we can actually, by willpower, create a, more, a better world. We can create a perfect world. We just have to stop being so mean. And those moments when we don't kill as many people, if we just learn from those, we'll do it. And in fact, he says very plainly that we will. All we, we just change the, show, the social environment. If we just get, see what causes trouble, we say, is poor people. If you make people poor and powerless, they're going to rise up in anger. And so war is going to happen. There's always going to be a struggle. Very Marxist. Now, I appreciate all these things, but there's an incredible problem that a man who has studied the history of humanity and sees the murder says, but we can end it. What? Where's the evidence that we can do this better? There's none. There's none. It's, it's rather naive. And so Ezekiel, one of the things that Ezekiel does and God does in this passage is he comes and he, he holds to our face the reality of how our shepherds have failed us. And he says very plainly, just before our passage in verse 10, chapter 34, he says, not only have, have we failed, but your shepherds have become wolves. I have to rescue the sheep from the mouths of the shepherds. And so our human shepherds have failed us. And when he's talking about shepherds, he's not talking about politicians. Don't get on your horse now about liberals and conservatives. It's not what he's saying. He's speaking here about every single human being in Jerusalem and in Judah with power that used it for their own sake. So we're talking here about business leaders, people of influence, teachers, pick a person. Just for the record, most of us in this room have a degree of power that most people in Israel did not have. And by power, I mean you have influence, you have resources, you have a vote, you have ability to change something in the world. And he says they have used it completely wrongly. Rather, he says, you know, every leader, every shepherd has been given to you and given resources and position. If you have money, don't think you're a self-made person. You're given these things. If you say, but I worked for it, who gave you that work ethic? 
Who put you in a country where your work ethic could be rewarded? Who put you in a time in history where it could be rewarded rather than you dying in a coal mine somewhere? And so remember, if you have any sort of power, any sort of privilege in this culture, you're called to use it to privilege others. And God says, you have failed. The shepherds of this world continue to fail themselves, fail us. They should have strengthened the weak, but they didn't. They should have healed the sick, but they didn't. They should have healed the, uh, the injuries of the, other, of the weak, but they didn't. They should gather the wayward, but they didn't. They should seek the lost, but they don't. And so what comes to this is if you know God better, you know that he is for us. That's what Christmas is. But it also says, Christmas also tells us that you cannot save yourself. If you could, he wouldn't have come. And so it's an indictment. So the first thing God says very plainly, it's a call. He calls us to know him better, man. That's what we're called to do. First thing in Ezekiel. The second thing we see is his response. God says, look, I've looked at everything. I've seen what you've done. And when you run from me, ignorance of God leads to societal decay. Every time in history. We just covered the book of Judges last, was it this year? I think at the start of the year. What was the whole story? It's decay. The further they move from God, the more they spiral away from God and downward. Society decays. And God says, in response to that, I've seen, just like in in Exodus 3, I have heard the cries. I've seen what my shepherds have done. And so I'm coming. He's going to respond. He says on two occasions in the passage we read, I, I myself will come. So he is coming. And his response reveals to us that he is a God um, of certain things. He says, "Here's here's my response to your trouble. And when I come, I'm going to reveal to you the kind of God I am. And he He says a lot. Here's what he says, first of all. In this passage we read, 18 times he says, I will. So there's a lot of I wills. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. But we can't go through all 18, because that'll take a while. But if you gather them all and kind of collapse them, you see he is a God of three things in this passage. The first thing is he is a God of relationship. And by that, when we turn to Christmas, one of the things Christmas tells us, and this passage tells us, is that God came to restore broken relationships. When he says that he is a God who will look for us, in fact, he says seek and examine. It's a word that's used in Leviticus that means to examine a sheep to make sure it's just perfect for sacrifice. So he's examining, he's seeking, he's finding the ones who are his. And he's doing that because he knows that when you're lost, when you've strayed, this is your biggest problem. Humanity's largest problem is not that we need better structures or better politicians. We need to restore a relationship with God. Because as we've removed ourselves from the source of truth and hope and goodness, we have been left to our own devices. It's a great experiment since Genesis 3 in, our, in, in self-governance. And we failed. It's a failed experiment. And God says, if you're going to have any hope, I have to come. I have to restore this relationship. And that's one of the first things Christmas tells us. That is God coming to restore a relationship. And he has to do it. This is American psychologist, Rollo May. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he says very plainly, it is ironic habit of human beings to run faster when we have lost our way. Think about this. What, remember this, it's a wonderful euphemism. It says, any port in a storm. Remember that? You know what that means? It means, heck, when there is a storm, I don't care what it is, any port will do. Anything that promises... Safety. I'll take it. And without God, we are people scrambling, saying, any port in a storm. What politician are we going to take? Whoever. It's got to be better than the guys here now. Right? What are we going to do for a job? I need a job. Anything. 
And they're not always bad. But sometimes, you see, when we don't know where we're going, it doesn't really matter what we do. We're just scrambling. We're following our impulses. We're following the people who scream the loudest. We're following the money, whatever it is. And without a restored relationship, there's no hope for us. And so Christmas comes to restore what can only be restored by God. And it's interesting, he says, he will bring Israel back. He doesn't say, I'll call and they'll come of their own volition. I'm going to go and grab them. Because one of the keys of this passage in Ezekiel is, is not flattering. He says, you're a sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, they're not, they're not the most anything, really. <laughs> they're just they're sheep. In fact, one of the most foregone conclusions of the ancient world was sheep need shepherds. And yet here we are as a modern culture, and Israel at the time of Ezekiel, saying, I don't need a shepherd. I'm good. And it's laughable to God. It's ridiculous. And so he's coming. He's a God of relationship. That's how he's responding, by showing he is a God of relationship. Second thing is he is a God of compassion. Christmas announces very plainly that God will lift up the lowly. And he says it often. I'm going to, and he says it directly in verse 16. I'm going to take the weak, and I'm going to strengthen them. I'm going to take the sick, and I'm going to heal them. Um, and this compassion is kind of his business card. In the Old Testament, whenever God is describing himself, remember even when he passes by Moses in Exodus, and Moses sees his hind parts, it says, what does God say? The Lord, the Lord, compassionate, slow to anger. He often tells everybody, that he, and especially in the Psalms, that he is a God of the widow, the orphan, and the, uh, the immigrant, and the poor. His, see, and I say business card because if somebody meets me somewhere and says, hey, what do you do? What do I present directly? I present to them the thing they need to know most about me, right? Which is, I'm a pastor and married to Sarah and have six kids. That's, that's my business card. When people ask God, who are you? He says, I am compassionate and slow to anger, time and again. And so he shows up at Christmas to do this exact thing because humans can't get it right, no matter what structures we have. And I think maybe capitalism is the best we can manage to, to do. Maybe the free market is the best we can figure out. I'm not a political scientist. I don't know. But even the best we can do still leaves swaths of poor and marginalized people. We can't seem to create anything that doesn't harm people. We don't know how to fill up a cup without taking it from someone else. We just don't know how to do it. And so God comes and says, I've got to do it. And this world, if it wasn't for God, would be far worse. If it wasn't for God raising up shepherds occasionally and pouring out goodness, in fact, the ghost of Christmas present does this. If you read the story, he Scrooge says, what are you doing there? Because at some point he sees the ghost of Christmas present sprinkling some powder on the cratchits and other people. He says, I'm doing this to add joy to the world. Because if anything, how can the Cratchits be happy with the little meager things they have to eat with what you pay them? I have to be there, he says, sprinkling the goodness on them. And so God is here constantly pouring goodness into the world. He's constantly creating rain and sunshine and bringing up people who have good hearts, even if they're wayward. And he's doing this common grace in the world. If it wasn't for that, we would have a much worse world. So Christmas says he's come because he can't stand it any longer to see what's happening. And he comes and he's, he's going to do away with it. Now, he's also finally the God of justice. Christmas announces God's judgment, that the world is evil and the king has come. And by justice, there's at least two things that are important in justice. Writing, making whole the victim, that's one, and then punishing the guilty. There's two parts. And so God says in this passage, especially verses 17 to 20 or so, he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge between the sheep and the sheep. Notice he doesn't say sheep and goats. I'm going to take the sheep and the sheep, 
the rams and the male goats, the same thing. And the idea is God's very careful. He is not just going to bring justice as you and I would see it. See, you and I think of justice, and we only know what the media tells us is the most important thing to worry about in justice, indigenous rights, trans rights, whatever it might be. God says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to do judging properly, meaning I'm going to see all the hidden cries. So if you're a person, for instance, let's, and I don't have anybody in mind when I say this, let's imagine you're a single parent, and Christmas will not be pleasant for you. Who, some people would say, well, justice for you would be having family around. What they don't know and what I can't know is every moment you sit in your house weeping. I can't. I can't bring right to that. I don't even know it exists. I don't know the longings of your heart. I don't know how the poor suffer. I don't know how the people, we have people in this church who will spend Christmas in hospital. I don't know exactly how they feel. But there's a God who says, I do. And not just, he won't just bring justice to some He's going to bring justice to everything, a full justice. And this is all at once wonderful and absolutely terrifying. Because that means he's not just going to bring right to all the wrongs, but he's going to bring punishment to all the wrongdoers. And this is hard. And this leads us to the final point of the whole sermon, which is the promise. How can we possibly escape justice? How can we do it? When God comes, I mean, this, this, I, I've said it in the Bible study, I think the most terrifying words in the entire Bible are Amos chapter 4, verse 12, which says, Israel, prepare to meet thy God. No, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to. And the reason it's horrifying is because you know you cannot stand before God. There's no hope at all to stand before God. And yet here in this passage, there's this tension that happens all through the prophets, all through Christmas, is this. God says all at once that if you're in exile, when you come out of exile, I'll have better shepherds, I'll have better kings for you. But he seems to be talking about more than just a better world. He seems to be talking about a perfect world. He doesn't just say, for instance, with verses 13 to 16, he doesn't just say, I'm going to provide enough food for the poor. Instead, he says, look at the language. I'm going to feed, all, I'm going to feed my people on the mountains, on the ravines, in the ravines, and in, in inhabited places. Not uninhabited, inhabited, meaning cities. What is he saying? There's something in, in literature called a merism. Anybody know what a merism is? I won't ask for questions. A merism is when you take two extremes to denote totality. This is what it means. I worked day and night. It means day, night, which means you worked all day. I know a topic from A to Z, which just means you know the whole topic. And when God says, I created the heavens and the earth, don't try to take it too, too literal. Literal, he did create heavens and the earth. But what it means is, I created everything. All of it. Heaven and earth, all of it. And so, when he says here, when Israel comes, I'm going to feed them mountains, ravines, and populated places. Where is he saying he's going to feed them? Everywhere. There's going to be no place they cannot find food, even mountains. How much food is on a mountain? Not much. He's saying, I'm going to feed them, not just provide some food, there'll be no hunger. And he goes on in those verses, and he says things that seem crazy. He says, I'm going to rescue them. But how can he say he's going to rescue them if he's still going to leave them enslaved by Babylon? In fact, just for the record, Israel, when Judah falls to Babylon in the 6th century BC, Israel will never, ever, ever be independent again until 1947, 48. So how can he possibly say, I'm going to rescue you? From, from what? Thanks for nothing. So what does he mean when he says, I'm going to rescue you? What does it mean when he says, and he's quoting and hinting at uh, Psalm 23, I will make them to lie down. 
I will heal their wounds. I will strengthen the weak. I will give rest to the weary. I will make them, they'll no longer be prey. Listen, Israel's been a prey forever and continues to be. So what does he mean when he says this? How could it possibly be true? The only thing we can look at is these hints that we find in the passage itself. Because the Old Testament, remember I've said it before, like Augustine says, the Old Testament is like a dimly lit room and it requires the light of the New Testament to help you see what's in it. And when you begin to see what he says here, there's hints. He says he's going to bring one shepherd, verse 23. I will, bring, I will set up over them one shepherd. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. What does he mean by this one shepherd? Christmas is saying that we, unlike Israel at that time, and many Jews today, we're not waiting for him to come. He's come. Christmas is an announcement that he has come. And he has come wonderfully. We just had it read. I said the kids read it from Luke 2. They only read 2 and 10 and 11. I'll read 12 as well. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you in, in, sorry, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And this king, this shepherd king who is coming, who has come, when he grows up, he then speaks. His first time speaking, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth in Luke 4, and they say, as was custom, a visiting man comes back and they say, hey, you know what, come and read the passage and offer some words. A little sermon. So he comes and he picks up and he opens up, he goes to, meaning he knows where he's going. He doesn't just randomly open and say, oh, whatever. He opens up to Isaiah 61, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Wonderful, but there's a problem. He doesn't quote this. Because Isaiah, he stops short. I'll go up here. Look what he does. He doesn't say the last part of Isaiah and the day of vengeance of our God. Why does he leave it out? Because Christmas is telling you that Christ will take the vengeance of God so you don't have to. And so Christmas is an announcement. The only way you could possibly stand when God comes is if somebody deals with that pesky verse and these promises to come and to come naked before us with his wrath against what was rightly our sin. And the, Christ intentionally leaves that part out because he knows he is going to bear it for us. He bore the vengeance so we could get the good news. And the good news is Christmas announces abundance, joy, Liberty, healing, favor with God, rightness with God. And it's something you desperately need and cannot live without. And so we're called to respond to Christmas. So if you're a Christian at Christmas, it's very simple. You've been forgiven of being a bad shepherd. We're all bad shepherds. We've all struggled. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so at Christmas, we say, praise him for coming. Thank you for this unmerited grace. And we rejoice because Emmanuel has come. We, we listen to the song. If you're a skeptic, I ask you to, to do what Jesus does. Ezekiel says he comes and he examines. He examines to see who is right, who isn't, who's, who's, who's in the faith and who isn't. I ask you if you're a skeptic, stop trusting something else you've heard from somebody else. You know how long I was a skeptic? And how long all of my arguments against Christianity were surrogate? There were surrogate arguments. Not ones I had, but I heard some clever guy say it and it seemed to make sense. And so... I urge you, Christmas is a time that you are confronted with a call and asked to respond. 
I dare you, and I say that really, I dare you if you're a skeptic, to look at the cross, to look at the manger, and see if you don't come away realizing you've been wrong for a long time. Because it's only real, and saying, you can't just say, oh, you know, Christ, you could take him or leave him. You know, I take this part, he's pretty, he's helpful here, he's not helpful there. Listen, you have, you're doing something there that is, is illegitimate. Christ does not give you the option. Scripture is very simple. You either run to or run from Christ. Nobody, nobody in the Bible ever meets God and says, meh, it's all right. Nobody gives him a two and a half star rating. It's either one or it's a thousand. There's one or the other. And so examine him. Look at Christmas. Take seriously this time and look at it. And I'll leave with you this quote from Tim Keller. Christmas means not just hope for the world, despite all its unending problems, but hope for you and me, despite our, all of our unending failings. Run to Christ, the baby in the manger. Let's pray.